Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Hegel, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following audio may contain graphic descriptions of violence or audio clips of real-life distressing moments. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Listener, one year. It has now been one year since the podcast started. Thank you. I mean that. Thank you. Now, I've been thinking about creating this anniversary episode for some time. What you're about to hear is a remake of the original episode. Episode 1, Mona Biddy. I thought it'd be worth circling back and apply what I now know and make a better version of our very first episode. I've never been happy with the first two episodes of Obscura. I was still learning the ropes. I didn't like the idea of recreating the episode at first. It seemed a little too George Lucas. But when I gave it thought, I realized something. That early version of the episode isn't doing justice to the memory of the victim. I owe it to her to create a definitive version of the episode. When I have the time, I'd like to recreate the first nine episodes, but there's no rush. I'd say those first nine were a learning experience. Not to mention, I was going for a different type of narration back then. A little too Dateline NBC. 
Now, I'll stop wasting your time. Enjoy the show. Pain is a signal, even if you don't want to hear it, even if you don't want to see it, it's still felt. December 1970 is a month with historical weight. It's the month and year that Paul McCartney filed a lawsuit to dissolve the Beatles. The US and the USSR were flexing their war muscles and conducting a constant stream of nuclear tests. The Occupational Safety and Health Act, also known as OSHA, is passed into law by President Nixon. But we're not here to talk about these things. Because in December 1970, an innocent little girl goes missing. In Jackson, Mississippi, a signal cast out. The tragedy shot echoes that reverberated through the community. Echoes that traveled cities, states, continents, and time. Part 1. Little Girl Gone It's a chilly night in Mississippi, and Mona has her face pressed against a screen mesh in her window. She's wearing a green nightgown with a floral design. Little Mona Biddy has brown eyes, is three feet six inches tall, with short brown hair and bangs. Mona wears braces. She has an unusual gait to her walk due to being pigeon-toed. It's a cold night in Mississippi, and the window is wide open. Despite her stepmother and father's pleas, for hours, Mona has looked out the window. Anytime her stepmother asks her to close the window, Mona repeats Mama and stares back out the window. Mona's biological mother remarried. She's now living in Mobile, Alabama. It's clear that Mona misses her mother. Mona has a mental disability. It's affected her development. She also has a speech impediment. Because of this, Mona attends a school meant for children with mental impairments. It's because of these reasons that she can't understand why her mother doesn't come. Despite her waiting, despite her pleading, her mother never comes. Carolee married Mona's father, Ted Biddy. The two had an affair, with Ted still married to Mona's mother. Mona may have a mental disability, but she's still self-aware enough to not accept Carolee as a replacement. If this is fair or not, I leave to you, listener. Thursday morning, 7.30 a.m. Six-year-old Mona Biddy is missing. Carolee and Ted are explaining to authorities that when the couple woke up, Mona was gone. Mona's stepsister, who shared a room with her, had no idea where she went. Their early theory is that she wandered away from the home. Police believe Mona couldn't have got very far. Early cursory searches turn up nothing. The chief of police is sick of half measures. He orders the then largest search effort in Jackson's history. Helicopters, horses, bloodhounds, friends, family, neighbors, and total strangers, all band together, all in search of the missing girl. 
150 volunteers combed the woods and fields in the surrounding area seven times. This is the 70s and in Mississippi. The terrain isn't easy to traverse. You can imagine the actual blood, sweat, and tears shed. Thursday night, Mona's biological mother rushed to Jackson to aid in the search. It's too late, but Mona's calls are finally answered. With the bloodhound deployed, authorities track Mona's scent out to Hanging Moss Road. It's there the dogs lose the scent. Local TV channels and radio stations inform residents of the missing child. Local construction company bring in their pipes and drain the creek near Hanging Moss to no avail. Eleven pipes in all. No luck. A day after the city's first effort, the search is this time varied. The search party receives reports about two children seen in different locations, one west of Illinois Central Railroad and the other near Trips Crossing. The police begin investigating other possibilities. They don't believe a girl with Mona's disabilities could have gotten very far on her own. A common theory is that Mona is a victim of a kidnapping. Volunteers and police start going door to door. Have you seen anything? Have you heard anything? Where is Mona Biddy? That last question, no one can answer. Sunday, December 7th. Desperation surrounds the investigation. The weather outside has dropped to the low 40s. There is a strong chill in the air. In the morning, you can see your breath. The Mississippi humidity and cold weather paints vehicles in grass and frost. The search expands to areas not yet explored. Search parties dwindle. Mississippians are not fans of the cold. Many feel exhausted, both mentally and physically. December 8th, Ted Biddy, Mona's father, makes a plea with tears in his eyes. A message to Mona's potential captor. Please drop her off at a local shopping center. Due to Mona's various disabilities, Mona can't identify you. Bring her back to us. A 75-foot streamer sign is flown across the skyline. It reads, Don't give up. Help find Mona. December 9th, Sam Bass and Alton Cummings are fishing. It's after 10 a.m., and it's a cold morning. They sit in meditative silence, arms crossed tight. The fish aren't biting. They're about to pack it in early, when Alton stands up fast. The small fishing boat rocks hard. Short of tipping them, Sam is about to ream them out when he notices Alton's face. It's screwed up in a confused gaze. There's a small green bundle slumped on the muddy bank, outside of the water. When police arrive, they find Mona's body lying in a small mud shelf, lodged in a recess from the main body of water. The body is not bloated, meaning that Mona didn't drown. One of her arms is covered in bruises. There is evidence of what appears to be severe blows to the head. Investigators are thinking foul play. Not only because of the bruises and head trauma, but Mona couldn't have traveled 15 miles away from her home on her own. She didn't walk here, County Sheriff Jonathan Edwards tells the press. It had to be foul play of some kind. A reporter asks Chief Tulos how long the body has been in the water. He responds, I don't know. 
couldn't say and wouldn't say that her body hadn't been in the water. I'd rather hold off until we get an autopsy report. After these statements, the investigators refused to answer further questions. They have a case to work. Part 2. Cries and Whispers The rumor mill is churning. Men who pretend to be too proud for such follies exchange opinions on the matter while sipping beer. Some believe Mona to be the victim of a traveling vagrant who strangles children. The children whisper on school playgrounds of a man in a shaggy coat and a strange hat. They say he plucks children from their homes. They tell their friends that he's quick, silent. His feet don't make a sound. Now one floorboard creaks in the homes of stolen children. Others believe it's a family member. Some talk of Mona's father getting drunk and killing Mona in a rage becomes a major part of town gossip. Cups of sugar and flour exchanged by housewives and long conversations held. December 15th, Ted and Carolee Biddy, at the request of investigators, travel to the police station. They go voluntarily. What transpired isn't known at the time. The police are tight-lipped. Carolee and Teddy cease contact with anyone outside of the family or close friends. The rumor mill kept churning, and the couple notice the looks they receive around town. Carolee finds it difficult to go shopping at the local general store. Walking through an aisle, other customers part like the Red Sea. It's clear to Teddy and Carolee that they're marked. If there is a stain on them, they can't wash off. On Wednesday, December 16th, something strange happens. At 8.23pm, a call comes into the police headquarters. It's Mona's stepmother, Carolee Biddy. She tells police in a panicked voice that she's the victim of an assault. Detectives rush to the scene. Neighbors can't help but look out the window as the police cars approach the Biddy residence. The story. Carolee was leaving her neighbor's house. Someone came from the shadows and tried to grab her. Family rushed outside but saw no one. Her arms provide evidence. Scratches, but nothing else. Detectives ask for what the Snatcher's features are. Carolee can't provide that information. She tells the police that she has no idea who would have the motivation to harass her and her family, especially at these lengths. On the same day, Chief Tulos informs the media that he has received a copy of an autopsy report. At this point, the rumors are without boundaries. Legendary, even. You must assume at some point these results got out. As copies of the report were sent up and down various chains of commands, some of the individuals given the memo broke their vow of silence. A husband to a wife, a secret between friends. Whatever the case, it got out. December 26 at 11.38 p.m., there's another call to police headquarters. Two-year-old Candace Biddy, the only blood child of both Teddy and Carolee Biddy, is a victim of a botched abduction. Ted tells police he was asleep on the couch when the family dog awakes him. Investigating, he finds a screen ripped from the window and Candace missing. He later finds her in the backyard. She's been laying on the frozen grass for some time. Ted tells investigators that Kara Lee was sleeping in her room. Police release a statement on the same day. The autopsy confirms that Mona Biddy's cause of death was suffocation. Investigators also confirm that they have their suspicion of who committed the crime. 
Part 3. Cancelled Plans Carly and Teddy Biddy are packing. They made the plans last night. Now they're about to set out. It's Sunday the 27th, 25 days after it all started. The plan is to leave Mississippi, drive to Georgia. They'd stay with a family, but everything cooled down. No more prying eyes. No more hushed whispers. No more police. They're sure this will cause the rumor mill to spiral out of control. But neither care. They need to get out of the state so they can breathe again. But tucking the last bags in the car, they hear the sirens. Old Teddy and Care Lee stop to look at each other. Only minutes late. Moments. The police car pulls to the side of the road. Car doors pop open. Carly and Ted watch as two men step out and walk towards them, almost in slow motion. One investigator, the driver, stays near the vehicle with his hands hitched at his sides. Locals see Carly's attempt to leave as a move of desperation. The police tell Carly and Teddy not to leave town, that if they do, it will be bad for them to meet at police headquarters with a lawyer. Once a couple arrives and, after hours of separate questioning, Carolee breaks. She claims the night Mona went missing, Carolee found Mona dead, slumped in her bed. Carolee tells investigators Mona drank liquid drain cleaner, that she died of poisoning, and that Carolee dumped Mona on the bank she was later found on. Carolee claims she feared that Mona's biological mother would blame her for the death. Police charge Carolee Biddy with murder. On the 28th, the police have Carolee escort them to the place where she dumped the child's body. Police haven't named any accomplices yet. Carolee is denied bond. A pathologist examines her, and she's admitted to the state hospital for psychiatric evaluation. May 1971, Carolee Biddy stands trial for murder in Pascagoula, Mississippi. The defense believes that Carolee strangled Mona and then dumped her body. There is a lot of debate during the trial on whether police read Carolee her Miranda rights. Carolee's defense contends that, during questioning, Carolee's lawyer became ill, that he had to leave the police station. While awaiting another lawyer, the police continued their questioning. The prosecution argues that a person can voluntarily speak without their attorney present. The trial ends in a mistrial when jurors can't reach a verdict. September 5th, 1971, second trial is underway. The prosecution is better prepared this time. Hare Lee appears confident. She maintains a cool exterior. Despite being shaken by questioning, in a shocking moment, Hare Lee admits to faking the abduction of Candace. This was an attempt to turn suspicion away from her during the investigation of Mona's death. One could assume that a similar incident involving a shadowy figure leaping from the shadows and grabbing her was also faked. The prosecution believes that the bottle of drain cleaner was bought after the incident. The liquid plumber wasn't even on store shelves at the time of Mona's death, making Carolee's drain cleaner defense impossible. Mona's biological mother testifies that Carolee complained to her husband and friends about caring for Mona. 
that Carolee told others that the child was difficult to watch when no one else was around. Mona was quite strong for a disabled child and an excellent climber. It wasn't uncommon to find her climbing the furniture. Ted Biddy testifies in court that Carolee told him that she found Mona deceased in her bed. That Carolee feared Mona's biological mother would blame her. So, she took the six-year-old to the reservoir. He tells the court that Carolee was in a state of panic and not thinking clearly. The jury deliberates for only a short time. The judge reads the verdict as guilty and sentences Carolee to 20 years in the state penitentiary. During the trial, Carolee was stone cold, almost emotionless during its entirety. With the verdict read, she finally cracks. Carolee faints. Her husband Ted Biddy and defense lawyer Chuck McCree carry the distressed Mrs. Biddy from the courtroom to her quarters. This display brought loud sobs from her family. They cry out in disbelief. Once Carolee comes to, it's clear she's struggling to accept her new reality. The verdict is manslaughter, not murder. The jury believes that Carolee killed Mona without malice and in the heat of passion. The judge grants Carolee bond pending an appeal. The prosecution reminds the judge that, according to her psychiatrist, Carolee is a danger to herself and others. With the appeal underway, Carolee and her husband decide to spend their time relaxing in sunny Florida. She has her hair cut short, making it wavier and more stylish. Her hair is now lighter, likely due to long hours spent in the sun soaking up the rays. Along with her new tan, she purchases a new wardrobe. Carolee frolics on the beach without a care in the world, while Mona is six feet underground. As her appeal comes to an end, Kara Lee returns to Jackson for her hearing. The sentence stays. The appeal, not a success. She leaves the courtroom in handcuffs, escorted by federal marshals. Outside, it's gloomy and gray. A thin rain falls from the afternoon sky. It's not cold anymore. Despite the grayness in the sky, humidity hangs thick in the air. In the news, it's reported that Carolee will spend the next 20 years in prison. In reality, Carolee Biddy only serves five years. Once released, she moves to Florida, likely due to her memories of soaking up the sun on the beach. The metaphorical stain was still present on her person, and she knew there was no going back to Jackson. Quick online search shows that she and her husband still live in Florida and joined a local church. Another search finds comments discussing what it was like living in Jackson at the time of the disappearance. They speak of Kara Lee almost as a sort of urban legend, as a local myth used to scare children in the area from wandering off alone. I've searched for information on Mona's biological mother, but nothing turns up. I can't even find a name when researching this story. I feel terrible for Mona's mother. Her unfaithful husband took off with her child. He then left his ill-equipped mistress to raise her. Can't imagine laws in the 70s were progressive. It wouldn't be a surprise to me if Mona's mother couldn't do anything to get Mona back. If anyone listening finds anything about her, where she ended up, her name, please shoot me an email or contact me on social media. I'd love to know. 
As for Mona Biddy, did she get justice? Was five years enough prison time for the murder of a child? Listener, I'll leave that to you. We can only take solace knowing there's peace in death. Never again can someone hurt the three foot six inch little girl with a pretty smile. Listener, to celebrate the one-year anniversary, I'd like to provide a little something extra. I'm including with this episode the censored version of Black Label 6. Since it's censored, it is a bit shorter than the full version. And I know that Black Label is usually reserved for Patreon. But after thinking about it, I feel this episode of Black Label is about a subject that needs more exposure. Now... I don't want to risk uploading the uncensored version to iTunes. Their guidelines are getting strict and elusive, but I think this episode still has teeth, even without the graphic audio. If the subject disturbs you, like it did me, then please spread the word. Not about the episode, I'm not that vain. But about the subject... We checked it out. We could only see the head and uh, the left hand sticking out of the mud had rings on it, and apparently she had died screaming. take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, 
romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. I want to be upfront with a disclaimer. I haven't felt this strongly about an episode not being for some people since Black Label 2. Considering the number of emails I receive asking if an episode contains the death of animals, I feel I'm right to be cautious. If you struggle with the death of animals, then this is not the episode for you. I know this is a difficult subject for many, but it's a subject I feel deserves a spotlight. We're going to dive deep into the recesses of a horrific industry. This history features audio perhaps best not experienced by lovers of furry companions. Again, this is animal-focused. You've been warned. Today on Black Label, we cover the animal crush industry. Morbid indulgence that has left me racked with sleepless nights. Listener, why do I feel so strongly about the torture and death of pets? Even, at times, when compared to the death of humans... Is this a character flaw on my part? I suppose it's worth elaborating on this more at the close of the episode. Before I continue, I want to state something now. This episode is not about kink shaming. I hold no objection to regular crush that involves one or more willing participants, and perhaps inanimate objects. What you do in your free time is fine by me, as long as it's humane. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. Smush. Jeff Valencia and the birth of a fetish. A very little key will open up a very heavy door. Charles Dickens. When I was a child, I remember being excited for the 1998 American remake of Godzilla. There's a scene featured in the teaser trailer in which a man is nearly stomped by the oversized lizard... But he's just missed by having the luck of standing between the monster's toes as it steps down. The trailer left me in awe. The movie, not so much. Never occurred to me at the time, being so young, that the sequence in the trailer could be someone's fetish. In 1993, just five years earlier, Jeff Valencia released an eight-minute experimental short called Smush. It features Erica Elizondo crushing earthworms and laughing during the entirety of the film's short duration. It's difficult to trace when the crush fetish began, but this short may have been the first of its kind. None of the crush fetish videos, in fact, Jeff himself directed Squish, 
which featured the crushing of grapes, but of a crushed tape sold featuring the on-screen demolition of living creatures. Even if just earthworms, it's an important part of covering this history. Valencia, the director, told interviewers that he'd been attempting to get people to step on him since he was three years old. The feeling is that of letting go, powerless, helpless, tiny, small, and bug-like, wanting to see a female crush something with her foot, longing to be a helpless insect as you squirm around under her foot, as she squishes your body into grease. This is more common than you may realize. In 2009, the New York Times reported on a Maltese immigrant named Giorgio T., who, self-described as a human carpet, carries a carpet with him from nightclub to nightclub, only the most bustling. He unrolls the carpet, climbs under, and spends hours, sometimes as many as four, getting crushed by the shoes of unaware bar and club patrons. This isn't limited to middle-aged men. Doing some digging, I found a concerned mother on a parenting website who created a thread and described her fear of her son's potentially burgeoning new fetish. When my son was six years old, I caught him bringing bugs into the house and dropping them on the floor for me and his older sister to unknowingly step on them. After advice from here, I decided it was harmless and let him continue with the idea. He would outgrow it. After a period of time, he stopped doing this. Now he is 12 years old and has the same size foot as my daughter and I. The other day, I noticed in my closet a pair of high heel sandals out of place. And when I picked them up, I just glanced at the bottoms and noticed a huge squashed water bug smashed on the sole. Back to our main subject, the Washington Post reported in 1993 that Jeff Valencia wrote a sexual manifesto called The American Journal of the Crush Freaks that immediately sold 200 copies and had global clientele. This was the match that lit a flame that cast no light. Fruit is the gateway, then the progression to insects. Many don't care about insects, so it seems harmless. But there's always the escalation, and soon, the insects seem less like forbidden fruit. Animal rights activists were alarmed when Smush became a popular underground fetish film. They saw the writing on the wall. In fact, actor Mickey Rooney was quoted saying, Put a stop, won't you, to crush videos. What are we going to hand our children? This is what we're going to hand down. These videos. Crush videos. God forbid. But their outcry wouldn't stop the progression. Jeff Valencia is still out there. He was interviewed as recently as 2014. There's no part of him that feels regret about his part in what he started. I wonder if he's aware of how far things have been taken. If he himself takes pleasures in the disturbing footage uploaded to the internet with surprising frequency. Although most crush fetish films are produced in the US, it wasn't long for Valencia's influence to take hold in other countries as well. The escalation would never halt. Part 2. Stiletto. The weapon of choice. I don't know who invented the high heel. The women owe him a lot. Marilyn Monroe It's difficult to track the history of the stiletto heel. Elizabeth Semelhack, author of Heights of Fashion, was quoted by Popular Science saying, I've spent the last 18 years trying to unravel all this history. When she was asked about the stiletto, though it seems that originally the stiletto found its roots as shoes for stirrups worn by Persian soldiers, 
Eventually, post-World War II artists painted women figures and shoes with, at the time, impossibly high and thin heels. That fantasy became a reality. In 2002, Craig Chapman, Christine Besford, Sarah Cook, and Teresa Smallwood were arrested in the United Kingdom for producing a crush film that featured a guinea pig. In the scene, the guinea pig can be seen with legs spread and taped to the ground. A woman's voice can be heard. You are my victim. Are you frightened, little man? You know that your destiny is under my heels. She walks into frame with stiletto heels. That's when the torture begins. The woman's pointed heels slowly crush each one of the guinea pig's legs as the innocent creature screams and writhes in agony. After the legs are reduced to gelatinous paste, the guinea pig can no longer resist. The woman takes a moment to crush its back. Now paralyzed, the guinea pig sits breathing in shock as the woman puts out lighted cigarettes on its fur. By this point in 2002, at least 2,000 crush videos like this had made their way to the internet. Take a moment to let that sink in. Process it. 2,000. The crew that filmed the guinea pig video were found with similar videos of mice and cats. The Guardian reported that the same year that an undercover investigator who managed to penetrate a ring was asked to crush a dog and was given step-by-step instructions on how to carry out torture that would last 90 minutes before the animal actually died in order to produce a feature-length film that could be sold for a higher price. The internet is littered with these stiletto crush videos. You just need to know where to look. The most popular animals crushed in these tapes seem to be kittens. The audio I'm about to play for you is from a real crush video. A woman's foot comes into frame. She's in stiletto-heeled shoes. The woman carefully hovers the point of her heel over the kitten's ear hole. She steps down with great force, and the pain the kitten feels is apparent. The part that hangs heavy in my mind in these videos is the juxtaposition of items like the stiletto heel designed for beauty during a period of post-World War II relief, against the backdrop for such terror. The name Stiletto comes from a thin-pointed dagger that shares its name. This name kinship with a deadly weapon is apt, considering it's the weapon of choice for those who derive pleasure from the animal crush fetish. Part 3. Man's Best Friend Whoever said that diamonds are a girl's best friend never owned a dog. Author Unknown I think it's worth taking a moment to separate what makes Animal Crush comparatively more horrifying than its adjacent topics. I know that there is likely to be a small but vocal minority to compare Animal Crush to hunting, but I'm willing to take it a step farther. Animal Crush may be the most objectifiable form of animal cruelty, even when compared to the worst out there. For example, the Yulin Dog Meat Festival that happens each June in China contains an overwhelming video and audio library of atrocity. One video features a terrified dog dunked headfirst into boiling water. You may be shocked by the laughter, but... Nearly every one of the videos that features boiled alive dogs also typically features the cold laughter of cruel men. You see, many who partake in the festival believe that dog meat tastes better if the animal died in fear. 
That's why you see videos such as the one where a dog is suspended in the air and slowly burned to death with a blowtorch. But what separates cruelty at the Yulin Dog Meat Festival to cruelty done in animal crush pornography? Listener, when you visit the website stopcrush.org, a tab will take you to an about section. If, at the time of your visit, you are unfamiliar with Animal Crush videos, this about section gives you a brief overview and is horrifying on its own. For those who do not realize Animal Crush does indeed exist, the videos generally feature, but do not limit themselves to, small live animals, such as kittens, puppies, mice, and bunnies, being slowly tortured in the most horrific ways imaginable. They are burned alive, cut with pruning shears, nailed to the floor, skinned alive, beaten, stabbed, and most often, they have their limbs crushed and broken, just to invoke more screams of agony. The majority of these videos share a common theme. The animals are incrementally crushed by scantily clad women in high heels. Those who purchase these videos view them for sexual gratification, an atypical sexual arousal toward the horrific torture and distress of another life form. That's where the act of cruelty is elevated. These animals, those we consider pets, are brutally tortured for sexual gratification. Not for food. It's strictly for pleasure. These videos, their production, hasn't suddenly ceased. From 2010 to 2012, Houston residents Ashley Nicole Richards and Brent Wayne Justice produced Animal Crush videos. The titles of these videos are White Chick 1, White Chick 2, White Chick 3, Black Love Sample, Adam Meets Eve, Adam Meets Eve 2, Puppy 1, and Puppy 2. When the two found that creating fetish videos turned an easy profit, they started with crawfish and crabs. As in previous cases, there was an escalation. Eventually, Justice and Richards found themselves producing cat and dog crush videos. Both Ashley and Brent were arrested and charged with animal cruelty in 2014. During the trial, the jury was shown a video of the pair produced. In the video, Ashley Richards can be seen wearing a mask and, yes, stiletto heels. She's feeding a puppy out of her hand, but the full video is 13 minutes long, so it doesn't stop there. After Richards is finished with the long torture session, she saws the puppy's head off pulls its guts out, and then urinates on the puppy's head. Ashley Nicole Richards is currently serving a 10-year sentence. Brent Justice is serving a 50-year sentence. When researching this episode, I found a YouTuber with the username The Flem Face, who accidentally happened upon Animal Crush videos. Um, the one I saw was just this little puppy. Just this little puppy. And this half-naked lady, and she was wearing these huge heels. And, yeah, she was just walking around in this tiny room. This tiny, tiny puppy. And the kind of, I imagine, climax was the puppy's head being crushed in by the heel of of her yeah oh, I remember like this the screams and, and uh. 
Um, there are a few others I remember seeing, and I imagine it comes into the category of crush. Um, and it involved like a nail and a, a head of a, a puppy. So there, there are quite a few more I've seen where there was a, there was a group. It's clear she's reeling from the experience. There's a realization I've come to when researching this episode that these videos are hidden in plain sight. It's not an experience limited to YouTubers. A quick search with the search term bunny gives access to an Animal Crush video, even with the family filter on, and this is on one of the big search engines. In the video, an Asian woman can be seen petting a rabbit. She produces a large circular slab of glass. The woman gently places the glass slab at an angle against the rabbit. She then sits down hard, slowly breaking every one of the rabbit's bones, reducing the animal to paste. Part 4. Secret Community. A Dark Detour. During my research, I ran into what may be the strangest online community I found that exists on the open web. In a video titled, The Hall of Horrors, a monkey named Daisy is shown suspended by its neck and being carted through hallways. The monkey is being carted through the halls of ITR, a company funded by a large pharmaceutical company. Daisy is being used for animal testing. It's likely her life will be a short and torturous one. Heartbreaking, right? Well, when you stop and look at the comments section of the video... You may be shocked at what you find. One comment reads, I love seeing these rats just ripped apart and violently mistreated. Another, by a user named Fiery Apes, reads, Hi Daisy, hope things are going well and your legs and arms are broken into pieces. And every day of your miserable life, someone hits you with a baseball and sliced your ears and eyelids are already ripped off. If you're pregnant, I hope you have the shit smashed out of you every day so the fetus can be examined. This were isolated to one video. You may be forgiven if you believe that this was just scummy YouTube commenters being scummy, but it's not isolated to one video. In fact, after finding so many of these comments in monkey-related videos, I did a search. My findings were equal parts horrifying and strange. Threads on Reddit, 4chan, and other forums have taken notice of an entire online community that derives pleasure in the torture and harm of monkeys, especially baby monkeys. And this is no small community. Using the search terms, kill monkey or poor baby monkey, will yield countless videos of monkey suffering. In the comments, full of users describing in excruciating details what they would do to monkeys. Some other disturbing comments are, put a clothespin on its genitals and tie its hands behind its back. And, I don't know why I hate them so much, but after a stressful day, this video helps me to relax. I am not a psycho. And finally, I'm not sure how much money you're making from YouTube, but I can assure you, it's nothing compared to what I will deposit into your account. If you somehow grab this sweet pea monkey, take it to a location where you can torment and torture it via the most severe methods you can imagine. 
with the grand finale being Sweet Pea going away forever. Do this for me, my friend, and you're going to be living the good life for a long time to come. Message me if you would like to discuss this further. Follow-up reply simply stated, I'll chip in too. Unless you think this is an internet hoax, I found several staggeringly large libraries full of monkey harm, torture, death, or just plain discomfort videos. One collection of these videos is curated and shared right on YouTube. It has 2,112 videos. I'm going to share this playlist in the source list because it's difficult to believe unless you see it for yourself. Every single one of these videos is littered with the most graphic and disturbing comments you can imagine. The videos are broken up and curated into sub-playlists. The categories are Baby Monkeys Having a Bad Time Baby Monkeys Suffering Dead Monkeys Baby Monkeys Are So Ugly and Creepy Baby Monkeys Are Nauseating Wounded Monkeys Rotten Little Vermin Makes You Want to Kick Them Don't You Wish You Could Step On It Baby Monkeys Unbelievably Repulsive Monkeys Are Disgusting Vermin Monkeys You Love to Hate Baby monkeys make me sick. Listener, take a moment to let this sink in. A community of at least hundreds exists that all share the common interest of monkeys being tortured. And they talk about this as casually as you or I would talk about getting a bite to eat. The theories on this community vary wildly. Some believe that this lines up with a shared fetish, like dog or cat crush videos. Others believe that these individuals share an innate baby monkey hatred. And, the darkest of all, some believe that this is a secret community of pedophiles. They use baby monkey hatred as a proxy for finding others with shared interests. What's strange is that all this can potentially be traced to a satire site, created in 1996 called IfIHadAMonkey.com. This site was intentionally created to anger members of the animal rights group PETA, It featured edgy jokes that involved violent situational humor with monkeys. The tactic worked, but Paul Hughes, the creator, was shocked to find how popular the website became. A near-endless stream of emails filled his inbox, suggesting increasingly more violent jokes. The number of jokes on the site is vast, and it's believed that this is the first time people in the baby monkey-hating community could share their hatred. From that shared experience, a bizarre community blossomed into the putrid flower it is today. You know, listener, I've been thinking about our relation to pets lately. Cats, dogs, lizards, birds, you get it. Most of us feel a kinship to at least one breed of animal. And losing a pet... It's always a difficult experience. That's what motivated the creation of this episode. I lost a pet dog, friend, and family member named Frank recently. A dachshund, a little ankle biter. He started having seizures close to a year ago. They were small and far between at first. By the end, that would last minutes and his howls could be heard throughout the home. The day we put him to sleep, I rode with him in the car, holding him. He was swaddled in a blue blanket, hardly moving, just shivering. I hoped, during the trip to the vet, that he wouldn't have another seizure. And he didn't. 
I made it to the door of the vet before he started. The staff members came out and helped get him inside. As I signed paperwork, I felt numb. It's a difficult feeling to describe. You don't want them gone from your care forever. But you want their pain to end. And Frank's pain did end. My wife walked out of the room as the vet came in with the shot. I stayed with Frank as he took his last breath. The vet and her assistants brought me some tissues and, after they ran my card, I went back to a now Frankless home. It's not an uncommon experience, I know, but I struggled with it. The color seemed to drain out of the world in the weeks that followed. I lost interest in everything. And during the extra time spent lying in bed, I began to think over our attachment to our pets. With the way my mind seems to work, it wasn't long before my thought process took a morbid turn. I started thinking about those that take pleasure in killing small animals. Though some consider it nothing more than an urban legend these days, I still think it's worth mentioning that sadism, or pleasure derived from cruelty to animals, has long been considered one of the three pillars of the McDonald Triad. The McDonald Triad is defined as a set of three behavioral characteristics, cruelty to animals, fire setting, and bedwetting past the age of five, claimed to be associated with later violent tendencies. A quick search online will find that the concept is hotly debated. Still, anyone who takes pleasure in the torture of animals is someone I personally wouldn't want to be associated with. This is the kind of episode I create Black Label for. It's a deep dive into an uncomfortable subject. It's not for everyone. It explores a taboo subject that many shy away from. But it's an important one. A subject that not enough are talking about. These videos exist, they're still being produced, and people are still using them for pleasure every day. Creating this episode was a bizarre therapy for me. I went through hours of audio and video for this episode. I will never forget the desperate howls and cries of the animals, annihilated for the perverse pleasure of the sick. And I'll never forget Frank. Rest in peace, little guy. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.